Then Welcome. I just want to say this is Jacob and His Children, A Journey Through Genesis, a continuation of Rabbi Silver's class from the spring, from spring 2022. We will be starting around Genesis 39. And with that, Rabbi Silver, who I believe needs no introduction. Okay, thank you. All right. Um, it is a continuation. On the other hand, if people are studying afresh, that's not a problem. It's uh, one can join the class. The goal is to, by the end of the year, to um, to complete um, the book of Breshit. Uh Just one second there. Oh, hold on one second. Um, did I lose you here? One second, where am I? No, you didn't. Okay, I didn't lose you. Okay, yeah, this got problem. Okay, um, so again, let me, before we, we, we're going to start with the 39th chapter, but before we do that, I wanted to give a background, just to review, and to set the, set the stage for what we'll be learning now, and hopefully the next couple of uh, terms to complete safe vibrations. Um, so the course is called uh, Jacob and His Children. So let me just begin this way. Uh, the book, the patriarchal narrative of Genesis, uh, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So there's a blessing that's passed down from father to son. The matriarchs play a central role as well. It's more about them uh, understanding how the blessing is to proceed. That is the covenantal blessing. At every turn, there are problems, dangers, conflicts, etc., And uh, the matriarchs seem to understand the way it's to proceed. They can't actually bless themselves, but they have an understanding of the way the blessing is supposed to work. Now, the story that uh, we should begin with reflecting upon is the story when Yaakov, having taken the blessing that his father had intended to give to his brother Esau back in chapter 27, um, so he, uh, he's forced to run away from home. His brother is very angry that Yaakov took his blessing. His brother intends to kill him. And Yaakov is running away and he runs away. He's going up to, to Haran to run away from his brother and to find a wife, one of his mother's brother's daughters, mother's brother being Lafan. But on the way there, he goes to sleep and he sleeps in a, place, which he will name as Beit El, God's house. And when he sleeps there, he has a dream. He sees angels ascending and descending, staircase to heaven. And he wakes up, he's very frightened, and he takes a vow. And that's a very critical story in the book of Breshi. There were several critical stories, that's one of them. And the vow, he says, God has spoken in the dream that God will protect, watch over Jacob, protect him, bring him back home safely. And Jacob, when he wakes up, takes a nether, that's a vow. Or the nedarim in the Bible, vows in the Bible, generally speaking, are conditional. And this is not an exception to that rule. And Jacob says, if God be with me, this is back in chapter 28, I'll just read it, God, in fact, is with me. And God, oh, watch me on the journey that I will take. Uh, 
if God will do all this. This is the end of chapter 28, verse number uh, 20. It says, mm-hmm. I took a vow. And then he says, mm-hmm. Give me bread, food to eat, and, and clothing to wear. And bring me back in peace and safety to my father's house. Then God will be for me a God. That's a very critical verse. What is Jacob saying? What does he mean when he says, then God will be for me a God? And one could read it in many ways. One could say he's bargaining with God. Listen, if you take care of me, you're my God. If you don't take care of me, I'll get another God. Or no God. That is not, I think, the tenor of the speech. That's not what Jacob was saying. I think he's saying something else. He's saying that Apart from the fact that when I come back, we'll make certain commitments. I'll build your house. I'll build your kingdom on earth, as it were. But apart from all that, he's saying something additional, which is central to that story. He names the place Beit El, God's house, God's Bayit. And the idea of the house or the Bayit has multiple meanings throughout the Bible. Um, and one of them, in the case of Jacob, primarily is family. Jacob calls his family his bayit on more than one occasion in this book. And what Jacob is saying is, if in fact you bring me back in safety, of course you're my God. You're the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, you're the God of my mother, the God of my father. That's not the question. But the question is, are you my God? That is to say, my own special relationship with God. And if you bring me back in safety, vows Jacob, I will build you a bayit. And by that he means a structure in which everybody in the family, let's say minimally his sons, are included in the blessing. Because up to Jacob, that's not the case. Because Abraham has two sons and a nephew and one over his, who runs his house. But the covenantal blessing is given only to one person. And that's to Isaac. His brother, Yishmael, has a blessing. God says to Abraham, I will bless him. He'll be a great nation, a powerful person. 12 princes, and in chapter 7, but the covenant is with Isaac. Covenantal blessing, which was articulated in chapter 15, that covenantal blessing is passed down to Isaac. Yishmael has other blessings. But, so the blessing is to one, the covenantal blessing is to one, and the same is true in the second case, second stage, which is Isaac passing on the blessing to one of his sons. Turns out to be Yaakov. Not going to be Asaph. And when Asaph says to his father, Do you have only one blessing? The answer is yes. There is only one covenantal blessing. There are many blessings, but there's one covenantal blessing. It will be Yaakov, it will not be Asaph. In fact, Asaph leaves the land. In chapter 36, we're told he simply leaves. So Asaph is very powerful, much more powerful than Jacob. He has great wealth, he has an army, he travels with him possessions, he owns a country, but he doesn't have the covenantal blessing. And what Jacob is, the vow of Jacob, the nether of Jacob is, if you bring me back in, in, safely, watch over me, then you will be my God. But that Jacob means my own special relationship. I'll do what no one else has ever done before me, which is to build this inclusive structure, to have a family in which not one, one child is chosen, but they're all chosen. One, two, three, five, ten, twelve, whatever the number is, 
they'll all be chosen. That's Jacob's vow. That's Jacob's mission in the book. So the way the conflict proceeds over the course of four generations, actually, that's what God said in the covenantal promise. The fourth generation shall return to the land. Three generations will suffer and the fourth shall return to the land. So the way it plays out in the book of Genesis is Abraham is first generation. Isaac is second. Abraham himself was chosen. He has two brothers, but he's chosen. His second generation, chosen, not Yishmael. Jacob is third generation, chosen, not Asa. And then Jacob's vow, Jacob's mission, self-proclaimed mission, is that the next generation, they'll all be included. And Jacob has not one or two sons. Jacob has 12 sons. They're all going to be included. That's Jacob's vow. And that is a central story in the book because the question becomes in studying the story of Yaakov, can he accomplish this? this can he fulfill the, the promise? Can he fulfill the vow? Which is, that is to say, can he create a family in which every member is covenantally included? That's not to say they're all the same. Everybody's different. Some have greater uh, responsibilities. Some have less responsibility but they're all included. At the end of the day, the answer, of course, when one reads Genesis is yes, Jacob succeeds. The end of the book, he blesses all his sons. Some get a wonderful blessing, some get more of a critique than a blessing, but everyone's included. No one is excluded. So that's the theme of the second half of the book, not the process of selection. That's the first part of the patriarchal story, but rather the question of can you build a structure in which everybody is included? And I would say that the question is not only a question in terms of the patriarchal family, but it's a question in terms of the universal family. Because the first set of siblings in the Bible, Cain and Abel, they don't do well. They don't work well together. And in fact, Cain kills his brother. So the question that is central to the book on the level of Israel and Jacob and patriarchal family is equally valid in terms of the universal family. We don't have a situation where brothers share a blessing. And certainly what we've studied so far, looking at the family of Yaakov, it doesn't look very promising. If you haven't read the book before, it doesn't look very promising that we'll be able to construct this family where everybody is included given the fact and in looking at Jacob's own family, we know that Ruvain in chapter 35 sleeps with Bilhah, Jacob's, one of Jacob's wives, uh, as certainly a hostile act and one that threatens to disrupt the family. Then we have the story prior to that in chapter 34, the story of Dina, which is a very, very interesting story on many levels. Maybe I'll come back to another level in which it's very interesting. But in that story, we have, among other things, a conflict between Jacob and in particular two of his sons, son number two and son number three, Shimon and Levi, who killed all the people of Shem, who take the spoils, the booty, the women, in order to rescue, and they rescue their sister Dina. And Jacob condemns them at the end of the chapter, you betrayed me, you sullied me, you dirtied me. And their response, either to Jacob directly or behind his back is, what do you mean? What's our sister? Is a kind of hot prostitute or something? So the point is there, you end up with very sharp words on the part of Jacob towards two of his sons, son number two and son number three, and the sons responding either behind his back or to his face, probably behind his back, 
I don't understand this fellow. What's he talking about? So Ruvain is son number one, Shimon is son number two, Levi son number three. So those three sons already have conflict with their father. And then we have son number four, who's the subject of the previous chapter, chapter 38. That's the story of Judah and Tamar, which begins with the words, Judah departs from the family. So he's checked out as well. And of course, the main story is chapter 37, the sale of Joseph, where the brothers uh, conspire to, to put it very bluntly, to murder their brother. It's not to sell their brother. The selling of the brother is an afterthought. It's not clear whether, in fact, they did sell him. It's fairly clear they didn't, actually. But the point is, when he first comes to them, they see him from a distance in chapter 37, one says to the other, Isha Lachid, one says to the other, the Torah doesn't even tell us which brothers are speaking. We can, we, we can infer which ones are speaking. It's probably Shimon and Levi, the ringleaders, because Ruben and Yehuda say, speak otherwise. But in point of fact, the statement one said to the other suggests they're all in one form or another involved, and the intention is to murder their brother. Ruben says to them, don't kill him with your own hands, throw him in the pit, where he'll die of starvation or heat or, or, or heat or whatever in the desert. So we will not have killed him with our own hands, but he will be dead. So there we have the brothers conspiring to kill in a replay of Cain and Abel. Brothers conspiring to kill their own brother. In which case, given all these stories, chapter 34, chapter 35, chapter 37, chapter 38, one must say that the prospects of Jacob uh, realizing his dream to build this inclusive structure, if we have not read to the end of the book, uh, it doesn't look very promising. And I would add an additional detail to this, which is a very important one, just to give us background before we start chapter 39. And that is that if we want to point a finger at anybody and ask ourselves the question, whose fault is this? Is this just human nature? That's part of it, no doubt. The Bible does not have a rosy picture of human nature, obviously. But in point of fact, if we want to point fingers, uh, the main culprit seems to be none other than Jacob himself. Because Jacob himself, back in chapter 27, has manipulated uh, his way to get the blessing that his mother thinks he should be getting. And his mother, I think, is correct in that. The blessing is appropriate for Jacob. But the way he took it is dubious, both in terms of tricking or deceiving his brother, which he does twice both by substituting for his brother uh, when he goes to Isaac, pretending to be Esau, and the story with the birthright, the buying of the birthright, taking advantage of Esau's uh, lack of perception, his uh, weariness, ayef, etc. And on top of that, he gets the blessing by, by tricking a blind man, taking advantage of, the, of a man who can't see, who happens to be his father. And what happens to him as we study is that everything that happens to Jacob when he runs away from home in the terms of the house of Ravan is a replay or one might say a response to what happens, what Jacob did. Jacob tricked the blind person in chapter 27 
and Lavan takes advantage of his, of his inability to see when he makes the wedding party at night. Uh, Jacob gave his father, you know, to drink, probably dulling his senses. Lavan makes a mishteh. Jacob, the younger, took the blessing destined for the older. And in the case of Lavan, it's the older sister who substitutes for the younger one. So there are all kinds of, there are many other parallels as well. I'm not going over it all. But one could say, I think in a deeper way, that it's not just quid pro quo, but that fundamentally what Jacob's, Jacob's behavior in chapter 27, he's gonna buy the birthright. He's gonna sell the birth, Esau to sell the birthright. In other words, it's treating the other person as a kind of object to be, to be used. It's using people. That's what Jacob does in chapter 27. And the king, the, the, the old maestro, using people, everybody has a, is for sale. Um, that's Lavan. Lavan is, that's Lavan's MO. He buys and sells. People are there to serve Lavan. And you use them, you know, and when, the young, when you don't need them anymore, you, are, you are discard them. So the point is, it's not just about, we can, yes, we can say he did this and he gets paid back in the same way. But the deeper problem, it goes back to Yaakov. And the way the family gets formed because of all this, he's not married to one woman whom he loves, but he's married to four women, two main ones, one of whom he loves and the other he does not love, who becomes his primary wife, namely Leah. And therefore the tensions exist, of course, married to two women, this tension between those two women, they seem to work it out in some sense. But then of course, there's tension between their children. And in fact, the very names the children carry with them reflect the, 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 the understanding of, of Leah, for example, that she's been mistreated, abused, mistreated, et cetera, violated. Ruben, God has seen my, my abuse. God has heard that I am hated. Levi, maybe this time my husband will join me. So the first three certainly bear names that attest to the um, deep unhappiness and a sense of mistreatment and abuse. And this carries on through, through the children. So therefore, Jacob's dream about building this family, everybody has a place, everybody's included, everybody gets along. They have to love each other, or they have to be able to be one, part of one covenantal blessing. Those prospects do not seem very, uh, very good when we begin chapter 39. And one could even wonder, is it possible altogether? Because on the level of the universal family, Cain and Hevel, it certainly didn't exist. Now on the level of Jacob's family, who took a vow, I'm going to build the bayit. Where is this bayit? So before we begin chapter 39, let me make one more comment about the setting of chapter 39. And that is that just before chapter 39, we have chapter 38. Chapter 38 is the story of Judah and Tamar. And it, chapter 38 interrupts, as it were, the story of Joseph, because the story of Joseph is chapter 30, begins in chapter 37. It continues in chapter 39. And then chapter 38 sort of interrupts the story uh, with a different story, with the story of Judah and Tamar. 
And we all know that there was a lot of discussion about the way the Bible is put together. And those who said, well, chapter 38 interrupts 37 and 39, it must be kind of interpolation. It was put in there, you know, uh, how to put it someplace, it's an important story. So they sort of put it into chapter 38, interrupting the story. So we've demonstrated, and others have demonstrated even before me, I think I did add many points to it, but others have demonstrated before me that chapter 38 is exactly where it should be. I wanted to come back to that point. By the way, just to repeat what I said earlier, the idea that because chapter 38 deals with a different character, it so-called interrupts chapters 37 and 39, somehow demonstrates that it's simply put in there it's hard to believe that any intelligent person would ever say such a stupid thing, but people have said it. As if there's one way to write. There's no one way to write. Book of Samuel goes back and forth, the story with Saul and David, Saul and David, back and forth. One of the great literary works ever. Genesis is another one. So, so the idea that you have to write a certain way is, is an absurdity to begin with. It's just stupid. But okay, but by having even leaving that aside, we demonstrated, and it's obvious, that there are loads of literary links to what precedes and what follows. But I want to focus on one link that is not really, haven't seen anybody who talks about this, so I will repeat what I said. And that is the end of chapter 38. The end of chapter 38, and then we'll begin chapter, I'll stop after this and take comments and questions, and then we'll start with 39. The end of chapter 38, the end of the story of Judah and Tamar. So the story, as we know, is Judah uh, marries a Canaanite woman, and they have three children. The first two die. They're wicked, and God kills them, says the Torah. The third son, he refuses to allow to give to Tamar, who's his daughter-in-law, and the rule of leveret marriage would, would, would dictate that he should hand over son number three to Tamar, but he doesn't because he blames her for the death of his first two children. We, the reader, know because the omnipotent author, an omniscient author has told us that it's not, it's not a fault. Judah doesn't know that. In any event, and he says, wait around for a while. My son is young, wait, wait around. So she's waiting and waiting and waiting. Never gonna happen. The, the youngest son has grown up already. So she dresses up as a prostitute and Judah's own wife has died. He's off to the Mardi Gras, he's off to sheep shearing. And he sees her, he thinks she's a prostitute, he wants to sleep with her. And she demands some kind of payment. He has nothing with him, I'll pay you later. No, no, pay me now. He takes a pledge, his staff, his seal, his coat. They also identify. And later, that she gets pregnant. And she, Judah hears about this, and he's, he had determined she should be she should be executed, take her out and let her burn. And she sends to him these identifying uh, pieces of clothing and Judah confesses, she's more righteous than I. The point being, of course, that leveret marriage is the closest relative performs leveret marriage, but in the absence of the closest relative in the biblical narratives, it's the second closest relative as in the story of Ruth, for example. So now she's gonna give birth. And this is going to be Judah's child. But it turns out she gives birth to twins. And it's a surprise. So at the time of her giving birth, she gives birth to twins. And that's the very end of chapter 38. So the lead into chapter 39. 
So I just wanted to go over that for a moment, the very end of 38. So it gave time for her to give birth. And behold, there are twins, twins in her womb. So now we have a description of the birth. This is the second set of twins in Genesis. The first set was Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau. And now we have another set of twins. So we're told the following, that they're about, these two children are about, about to be born. One puts out his hand and there's a midwife there. <coughs> so the midwife put on the hand to identify the child, put a red thread, crimson thread, crimson is red, a red thread on her hand to signify this one is born first, because she assumes the hand is put out, so the baby will be born first. However, surprise, by he but he pulled his hand back. and his brother came out. What a breach you've made. And and he, he was called Peretz. The breach. Then the one with the, with the red string came out. And they called him, his name was Zerach, which means brightness. And now, so what is the point? This is the end of the story. So they were twins. So Tamar gives birth to twins, and the other set of twins in the book of Breshit is are the twins born to Rebecca. Rivka has twins. Yaakov and Esau. And when you read the story of the birth of the twins at the end of chapter 38, immediately we realize that the two stories are linked together, literally linked, because Esau is red. He has a ruddy complexion. In fact, they call Esau Edom. Edom means red. So Esau is Edom, is red. Uh, he also eats red food later on. Give me that red, red food, he says. Now, Yaakov, we don't know what Yaakov looks like. We know he doesn't have that much hair because Esau is hairy and Yaakov is smooth. That we know. Well, the word Peretz, actually, in the book of Genesis appears three times. And they're in conjunction with Jacob every time. Uforatsa, the blessing to Jacob in chapter 28, when he has the dream Uforatsa, Later on, and Yaakov said to Lavan, when Lavan says, please don't leave me. He says, when I came, you had nothing. But I made you, but now you have a lot. Now I have to take care of myself. So the word perex is a Jacob word. Zerach, brightness or red, is an Esav word. So we have over here a replay of sorts of the birth of Yaakov and Esav. And now the question is, how to interpret the replay. First step is seeing that it's a replay. Now the question is interpretation. That's where people can differ. So my understanding is this. The case of Yaakov and Esau, we know, because the Torah tells us, Isaac said it, and the oracle said to Rebecca when she wanted to know, what's happening inside me? You have two nations. When one is up, the other is down. They, won't, they can't ever coexist. Maybe they can coexist, kind of benign, you know, peaceful coexistence of sorts, uh, benign neglect or whatever, but they'll never be one. 
that, that's completely different forever. It's Yaakov and Asa. And the reason if one asks the question, why is that the case? The answer is because there's, there's a struggle at birth. One of them wants to be predominant. And it's not clear who's born first. Okay, Asa came out first, Yaakov bought the birthright. It's always unclear who was first and who was second. And when things are unclear, <coughs> when people's roles are unclear, <coughs> when people's position is unclear, that's when you get conflict. But in the case of Peretz and Zerach, it's the opposite. Because yes, <coughs> Zerach put his hand out first. And then <coughs> when Peretz was born, but of course the point is that on the hand of Zerach, which means bright, is the red string. Now the Hebrew word for red in this case is not Edom or Dom, but Shani. And the word Shani, Shin, Nun, Yud, in the unvocalized Hebrew is the same as Sheni, which means two, second. In fact, when you read it, you puzzle. And she put on his hand a Shani, which means red, but also can be read as two, saying this one came out first. What is it? Is it one or is it two? What is it? And then the question becomes, the ambiguity becomes disambiguated because the one who has the Shani is in fact second. And the parents, it's clear who's first and who's second. The Shani is Shani, he's second because the hand is not a birth. The whole person coming out and most of the person coming out or the head coming out is birth, not the hand. So in this case, we have a disambiguated uh, story. Peretz is first, Zerach is second, it is clear. And the more important point, that's number one. But the more important point is this. <clears throat> more important point is <clears throat> that in this particular case, they're both included, by definition included. Why are they by definition included? They're by definition included because the story of the birth of Peretz and Zerach, the father is Judah. The father is Judah because Judah did not allow son number three, Shelah, to marry Tamar. So Tamar takes the initiative and gets Judah to sleep with her. Can't get the closest relative, like the Book of Ruth, which is based on Judah and Tamar. You get the second closest relative. But Tamar has lost, Judah has lost not one son. Judah has lost two sons. So therefore in the story, by definition, we need both sons. It can't be one or the other because there's not one dead son, there's two. Not one dead husband, but two. And therefore, by definition, by definition, we have a case the first time ever that we have a family of sorts, strange as it may sound, we have a family, we have siblings, both of whom are included. Now, if we ask ourselves the question, what is the point of including chapter 38 where it is? There's a lot of answers to that and very good ones, but I'll mention one thing in particular. Chapter 38 is the, makes two, saying two things. First of all, it's possible for siblings to coexist. By definition, they coexist in chapter 38. But if we ask ourselves the question, how did this birth take effect? what was necessary for the birth to take effect? And the answer is that in chapter 38, Judah initially 
is somebody who evades his responsibility, leaves the family, evades responsibility. But this is the important point. At the end of the day, when Tamar confronts him, as she's being led out to be executed, and she sends him the coat and the staff and the seal, symbols of leadership. And she says, are these yours? These, these belong to the one who, who, who uh, is the father of these, of, of, these, of, these, of these children. And Judas said, Judas said, when he saw them, recognize him, Sadka Mimeni, she's more righteous than I. And he takes responsibility. So the two themes of chapter 38, the two things that make it possible for this family to exist are number one, Judas taking responsibility. That's the theme of the Eravon, the security, which plays a central role in chapter 38. And secondly, and most importantly, confession. Taking responsibility and confession are the keys to those things that allow the family to exist. Without that, you have disunity. And I would add, by the way, that we don't have to jump to chapter 38 to see this. We can see this right in the second, we just read it this past Shabbat, it's the story of the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve have partaken of the forbidden fruit and they're hiding among the trees, and God says to Adam, why are you hiding? Oh, I, I realize I'm naked and I, you know, I had to hide from you. Really? How do you know that? You didn't eat that fruit, did you? And that was his opportunity to say, yes, I did. And I have no excuse. I am guilty as charged. And then we all be living in the Garden of Eden. <coughs> But of course, that's not what he says. He says something quite different. He says, it's our fault. And, and by the way, God, your fault too. Woman, what about you? Snake made me do it. And there's always some truth to the excuses, but not the whole truth. It doesn't matter. You did it, you're responsible. That's the point. So, and from this, we have the, uh, the exile. And we have the division between people, husband, wife, children, parents, it's about not taking responsibility. But what the Torah has given us here, we, now we return to the story of Joseph, of course, and what the Torah has given us is a prescription. If in fact, Jacob will ever build this family, as un, unlikely as it may look, but we have a prescription. Two words, one is the word arev or eravon, and the other is confession. And of course, it will be Judah himself, who both will take on the responsibility as the arev, in chapter 40, uh, 42, 43, and then again later in chapter 44. And Judah will also confess to Joseph in chapter 44. So basically, the Judah has been taught a lesson by this Tamar. And the um, question is, of course, for the, us, the reader, we know the end of the story. But when you, you don't know the end of the story, will we ever put this this teaching into, into will we ever be able to apply this teaching that he's learned from his, from his, uh, from his, from, from his Rebbe. Um, so that's, now we begin chapter 39. So we know, we read the book, we know that yes, Judah will be able to put this into play, but before you get there, many other things are going to happen. But the family is in complete disarray. I wanna make one other comment here about what preceded chapter 39. I don't want to get into this now too deeply at all, just to make a comment about it. And that is to reflect back on a moment on the story of Dina. 
story of Dina is a very important story for us because that's a story in which you really get a sense that Jacob is in conflict with some of, at least some of his children in very deep conflict with them. Because the story of Dina revolves around the fact, among other things, that Dina is, is actually Leah's daughter. Dina about Leah, that's how this chapter begins. And it recalls the conflicts of, uh, you know, recalls the conflict between Rachel and Leah, for the battling for the affection of their husband. And Vatetse Dina about Leah, that's how chapter 34 begins. And we recall, as the Medrash uh, Rashi quotes it, that in the struggle of Leah and Rachel for Jacob's affection, we remember the story back in uh, chapter um, chapter 29, chapter 30, where chapter 30, where Reuven went out <clears throat> and he finds a mandrakes, fertility pill. He gives them to his mother. And Rachel asks for some of the mandrakes. And Leah says to Rachel, you took my husband, you want the mandrakes too? That is to say, he loves, he loves you more than he loves me, but I'm the mother of his children. You want to have, I have four kids, you have none. Okay, so we have a kind of equilibrium. You he loves, and I'm the mother of his children. So, we, so, so Rachel says, okay, you know what? We'll, I'll make you a trade. You can sleep with him more often in return for the mandrakes. It's an ongoing deal. You give me mandrakes, I give you rights to Jacob. So Leah agrees. They work out a deal. And then the Torah said, it came at night that Jacob came back from the work, but Leah went out to greet him. Rashi connects those two statements, and And the point I would make is the following. There's much to say about it. I want a simple point to make, which is when you have situations like Jacob and his family, people end up doing all kinds of things they normally would not do. But under the circumstances, because of the pressures, the tensions, and the other unhappiness, et cetera, people act in ways that is, for them, not a, a normal way of, of behavior, not an appropriate way of behavior. Where it goes to Jacob and says, listen, you're coming to me tonight. I've rented you out with the mandrakes of my son. I, I, excuse me, I, Jake, I rented you for the evening. That's what she says. That is hardly suggestive of a healthy family uh, structure. I've rented you for the evening. So the, in point of fact, what it speaks to is that when the family is problematic, as Jacob's family is, constructed in this way, so people will do all kinds of things. It's interesting. Now, the point that I wanted to get to about Dina, Dina's story, is that the story of Dina, and this is, this is about studying the Torah in general. The story of Dina is a very important story on many levels. Here's one of them. The story of Dina, the conquest of Shem by Jacob's children, is in fact uh, reflective of the ultimate conquest of the land of Canaan. In fact, that was the covenantal promise to Abraham. The fourth generation shall return to the land. If we think the first three generations will be strangers and sojourners, and they'll be oppressed and abused and slaved as Jacob was in the house of Ravan. All those terms are found in chapter 30, 31. 
but the fourth generation will possess the land. Fourth generation on the face of it are Jacob's children. And they do possess the land, symbolically, that is to say, they capture Shechem. So the story of Shechem, among other things, is about conquest of the land. A very important point. Most have missed that point. That's a very important point. But what's interesting is something to think about that the story of Shechem, the story of Dina, is very, very problematic story in terms of the behavior of the brothers. Problematic on many levels. And one can really think, ask the question, what does it say about the conquest? In other words, conquest may itself be problematic. Not that, it's, not that it shouldn't happen, it's gonna happen, but it's problematic. The behavior is problematic on so many levels. The behavior of the brothers, the behavior of Shechem is also problematic. So that's interesting that the Torah is, one might say, presenting us with a story. Same thing is true of the book of Joshua. Not to get into that now. So the, the conquest itself is, is problematic. Even if it's necessary, it's problematic. That's one interesting feature of the book. And here's another interesting feature of the book. If what I said before is correct, that the, the issue of the, can we build a family? An inclusive structure, everybody's included. Is that possible? It doesn't look possible. But the prescription of confession and responsibility, that is the prescription to build the family. And Judah had a teacher, essentially, taught him about responsibility, and his Rebbe is named Tamar. And what's interesting is, who is she? She's not Jewish in any sense. She's not part of the family. She's not related. To... Now, she's never called a Canaanite. I mean, what else could she possibly be? And the answer is, she's none, none of the above. But it is, I think, very curious that the prescription, the covenantal prescription, what makes it possible, does not come from within Jacob's family at all, but completely from outside. And a woman, no less, but, but, but not even part of the family. And we hear nothing about Tamar later. Book of Ruth's site reminds us of Tamar. The house should be like the house of, of, of Peretz, right? That, that Tamar bore for Judah. So Tamar is mentioned. But it is, both of these phenomena, I think, are very interesting about what makes this a great book, among other things, is that not just it's an incredibly nuanced book, but there's constant surprises here that the, the, the prescription for covenantal existence comes from a complete and total outsider who understands the way it has to work. I think that is remarkable. So that's the end of chapter 38. That's the story of Peretz and Zerach, which means it's possible. It is possible to actually build a structure in which everybody gets included. That's possible. Now the question is, can, can, can it be replicated? Peretz and Zerach, okay. They're twins, each one replaces one of the children. By definition, they're both included. Is it possible in the larger scheme of things? The larger scheme, of course, is Jacob's family. Chapter 37 was the sale of Joseph. Can, can the pieces be put back together? So that's our question as we embark on our study, beginning with chapter 39. Now let me stop here and take comments or questions. And people who are not panelists, if you uh, use the virtual raise your hand icon or ask in chat, I can give you permission to speak. 
David? Yep. What you said reminded me about um, Malkit Sedek speaking to Abraham. He also wasn't Jewish. And he brought up many concepts that Abraham then incorporated. That is true. I mean, he comes, he's, um, yes, he comes with a blessing. He understands, he frames what Abraham has done. Whether Abraham understood it or not, I have no idea, but he frames it in terms of you have fulfilled God's will in this world. That's very true. And it is also striking as we study, when we study chapter 14, that the story of Malkitzedek coming to greet Abraham after the victory, after retrieving the captives from the four kings, the language of Malkitzedek, Baruch Avram that those two verses are the heart and soul of the first blessing of the Amida. Elohim, Magen Abraham, and so in other words, the, that is the main prayer of the Jewish people. The main prayer of the Jewish people is fundamentally emerging from the blessing of Malkitzedek. This non-Jewish, whoever he is, who knows, he's a king and he's a priest, to El Elyon. It doesn't say Hashem El Elyon, it says El Elyon. It's not clear. His conception of God is not the same as Abraham. Abraham says Hashem Eroyon. Malkin said it does not. But it's remarkable, I think, that that is the, the, the most basic prayer of the Jewish people coming out of Malkin Sedek's statement. So yes, the Torah is interesting in that respect as well. Thank you for that comment. Uh, yes, Malkin Tamar, Yitro was the one who essentially teaches us how to build the system of justice. So there are people outside the community, outside the family, who are, who are major contributors to our understanding of how one walks in the world and serves God. Yes, the Torah certainly thinks very little of the nations in general, that's for sure. It's not to say that individual people are not virtuous. I think that's a thing we could so we say that. Most certainly say suggest that. Yeah. And we begin yeah. our davening with Matovu. <laughs> Matovu is when I say davening, yes, Matovu is coming from Bilam. Yes, that's true. But there is when I say davening, yes, when I say davening, I mean what is classically prayer. Prayer in the Talmud, prayer in the codes is one thing and one thing only, which is the Amida. I know, but I just meant Bilam also comes Bilam up. Bilam is He's also, coming. right? I know. Right. That is true. That Bilam is very striking. That we, um, the blessings of Bilam are now, I wouldn't put Bilam in the same league as Malkitzedek or Tamar. Bilam is a basically a bad guy, but he is, you know, but even bad people can sometimes say profound truths. Um, and it is very striking that we, you know, Bilaam's, Bilaam's prophecies are, are very central. They're central in the book of Bamidbar, too. And it is true. The first thing we say in the morning, walking to the synagogue, Matovu Olecha Yaakov. Anybody else? If not, we'll start. Chapter 13. This was, and it's important to get our, you know, get our bearings over here where we stand.
And now we will begin with chapter 39. Okay. Chapter 39. Okay. Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma. Vayikneu Potifar Sris Paro Saratabachim Ishmitri. Miyada Yishmeirim Asher Horidu Shama. So verse number one, Joseph was brought down to Egypt. First of all, verse number one, Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma, is interesting itself, those three words, because chapter 38 began with the verse, came to pass at that time that Judah went down. There's the verb, he went down. Hurad is the passive, he was brought down, which is interesting. Judah is an actor, very decisive actor. And Joseph here is presented as one, he was, he was sold. He was brought down to Egypt. He didn't go willingly. He was brought down Hurad Mitzrayim. But again, it links chapters 38 and 39. And now we're told he is poor. He's purchased by Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers, Sarah Tabachim, a chief, they translate chief steward I have, but means Tabach is a butcher. He's a butcher, chief butcher, an Egyptian from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. Now, if we look at the end of chapter 37, we have the parallel phrase. There at the end of chapter 37, it says, In terms of Joseph, the Midianites brought him down to Egypt, sold him to Egypt. So at the end of chapter 37, it says the Midianites sold him. Here he says he was brought down by the Ishmaelites. There is no contradiction there because the plain reading of the text is that the Midianites pulled Joseph out of the pit. They sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites who brought him down to Egypt. So in terms of there's a chain over here, a chain of events, the brothers think about selling him. The Midianites, in fact, pulled him out of the pit and sold him. The Ishmaelites brought him down. No contradiction. Um, but it is interesting that in chapter 39, it mentions the Ishmaelites, Ishmael. And that's an interesting point because if we think about Yishmael himself, Yishmael himself uh, experiences a similar, uh, similar set of events that, that Joseph does. Yishmael was thrown out of his house, kicked out with his mother and they run out of water. They run out of water in the in the uh, in, in the desert, and she sits far away, and she says, "I don't want to see him die. He's going to die of thirst in the desert." He was thrown out, kicked out, because Sarah, back in chapter twenty, says, "Saw Yishmael, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, mitzachet, mocking or taunting," and certainly Joseph could be accused of similar behavior. He brings back evil report. And in fact, he tells his brothers about his dreams. You're gonna bow down to me. So it's similar in that respect. And in fact, it's the Ishmaelites who bring Joseph down to Egypt. There are other links as well. So we have to keep that in mind of Yosef as a kind of Yishmael figure. He's not Yishmael though, in the sense that Yishmael has a separate blessing, is not part of the Isaac family. But Joseph is a different story because Joseph is essential to the family and essential to Jacob's dream and Jacob's commitment to build the family. 
but Joseph's in Mitzrayim. How is Jacob's dream going to be realized if Joseph is in Egypt? Now we have something else. In verse number one, chapter 39, we notice something uh, about its relationship to the last verse in chapter 37. And that is that apart from the fact that here it's the Ishmaelites and there it's the Midianites, Midanim, um, but apart from that, in the end of chapter 37, it says they sold him to Egypt, to Potiphar, Stris Paro, Saratabochim. When you look at chapter 39, Averse, chapter 39, it says, Potiphar, Siris Paro, Saratabochim. So it's identical. But here, the Chumash in chapter 39 has added two words Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian. The fact that it's parallel to the end of chapter 37, but adds two words, means that the Torah is emphasizing the two words. Obviously, this is resumptive because we had chapter 38 that interrupted. But now we go back to what happened at the end of 37, but the Torah doesn't just repeat it. The Torah does repeat it. And maybe the Torah repeats it, Dafka, because of these two words. Because these two words, of course, he's an Egyptian. He was sold to Egypt. Yosef Urad Mitzrayma. So we know he's an Egyptian. And Viserys Paro is probably also an Egyptian too. But the fact of the matter is, the Torah wants to emphasize the Ish Mitzri. Yosef is in Mitzrayim, in the heart of Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim is not just a geographical place in Genesis. It's a set of values, as we will see. Because the first time we encounter Mitzrayim, which is chapter 12, is when Abraham heads down to Egypt during a famine. And he says to his wife, Sarah, he says to her, listen, uh, you're a beautiful woman. When we come down to Egypt, they're going to see you. And they'll say, this is this woman's husband. And they'll kill me. And they'll take you. So please say you're my sister. So the assumption Avram makes about Mitzrayim is it's a place where if they believe that they're married, they will eliminate the husband or kill him and they'll take her. That's his assumption about Mitzrayim. It's not an assumption that is necessarily wrong. We could well be the case. In point of fact, if one assumes that what he's saying is, you know, say you might, I'll be the brother, maybe I'll negotiate. And then by the time, you know, the famine is over, we'll hightail it out of here, go back home, all will be well. Brothers negotiate in Genesis for their sisters' marriages, as did Lavan for Rivka. Possible. But the point is that in this story over here, we're going to have a similar story a little later on with Mrs. Potiphar, where she's going to say to, she's going to say to Joseph, listen, let's forget about my husband. Me and you can, you know, me and you can, can form this relationship or whatever. What he doesn't know is not going to hurt him anyway. So it's similar in that respect. And therefore, the reason I emphasize this, the Mitzri part of it, the culture of Mitzrayim, the values, is because this will be actually a test for Joseph. Who is Joseph? That's one of the main questions. Who is this guy? He's going to be living in Mitzrayim. His own family trying to kill him. Uh, he's distanced from them. So will he adopt um, the Egyptian values? or will he be able to function in Mitzrayim uh, and still maintain his own values? 
When I say function, as we'll see shortly, he functions very well in Mitzrayim. I would say fabulously well. He's a fabulously talented fellow. There's no question about that. And God is helping him at every step. So we'll see. But this is going to be the question. Who is Joseph? And this will be a very important chapter. Because at the end of the day, if he refuses to get involved with Mrs. Potiphar, on some level, an ethical, religious level, he can't be a Mitzri. That's, I think that's one of the main points of the story. No matter how much he seems to assimilate in every other superficial way, and maybe not only superficial, but in this sense, in an ethical sense, he's not going to be able to do it. And that's very important. So the Chumashia added those two words, Ish Mitzri. Right. Now let us continue. Verse number two. Vahi Hashem et Yosef, Vahi Ish Matzriach, Vahi Bevet Adonav HaMitzri. So Hashem, the name of God, God has different names in Genesis, as we all know. Here the name is the very personal name of God, Yudhei Hashem is with Joseph, and Joseph is successful. Successful. The next verse as well. Vayar Adonav Ki Hashem Ito, V'chol HaShahu Oseh, and it was obvious to Potiphar, this Egyptian officer, uh, butcher, that, that the God of, God of Israel, Hashem, is with him. And everything he does, God enables Joseph to succeed. The Hebrew is matzliach. Now, when you read these two verses, there's something very interesting about these two verses which of course are only interesting when you look at the larger context of Genesis. And that's the following. God has different names in Genesis. yud Elohim, of course, Shaddai is another name. Maybe el Elyon, another one. What's interesting is that the name of God barely appears at all after chapter, after chapter 35. 35, Jacob travels up to Beitel, um, and he returns to Beitel. He keeps his promise. God appears to Jacob in chapter 35. God speaks to Jacob in chapter 35. And there it's Elohim. Elohim, not Hashem. And after that, we don't see God's name. We don't have God's name. God certainly never speaks. And, not, and the name yud appears not at all. And suddenly now in chapter 39, remarkably, Vahi Hashem et Yosef. So we have this name, this personal name of God in verse number two, and again in verse number three, twice in verse number three. Uh, we have it again in, we have it again in, uh, in verse number five. Twice more, Birkat Hashem, twice in verse number five. Then after Joseph ends up in jail, um, we have it again in verse number 21. Right? And in the last verse of the chapter, twice more. So it's over and over again, this name of God. And afterwards, the name yud appears not again in the book of Genesis, except one time, just once. In Jacob blessing his children, the uh, enigmatic statement, we Hashem, 
We'll get to that someday, I hope. What do we make of this? That's the question. And of course, the point is when you read chapter 39, you make nothing of it because how would you know it's exceptional? So when you read the book, the whole book, say one second, over and over again, this name of God appears. It appears not from this point on. And the name of God barely appears at all. This name does not appear at all. And God never speaks, of course. The last time God speaks in Genesis is when Jacob's going down to Egypt. But in, in Egypt, God does not speak. Not in this book. So what do we make of this is the question. Of course, we notice. Now the question is, what do we make of it? I'll tell you what I make of it. I'm happy to hear other suggestions. The point about Joseph, we remember we, we made reference to the fact at some point that both in the blessings in Genesis, the end of the book, and the blessing at the end of the Torah, the Zotah Bracha, the last uh, section of the Torah that we read on the last day of Sukkot, Shemini Yatzeret, Simchas Torah, we call it. And we have the blessings over there, and Moses blesses the tribes. Two tribes get a very big blessing from Moshe. One is Levi, and the other is Yosef. And they both, both Yaakov at the end of our book and Moshe at the end of the book of Tzvarim, conclusion of the Torah, describe Joseph the same way. Nazir Echav, called Kod Nazir Echav. The blessing should fall on the head of the one of Nazir Echav, separated from his brothers. A Nazir actually means one who is separated. And the Torah has a whole chapter devoted to the Nazir, one who is taking additional uh, responsibilities, doesn't drink wine, doesn't come in contact with the dead, not even his own family, not even his own parents. And um, Joseph is called the Nazir in both places. The one who is separate. And the point is that Joseph is in fact separate. He's someone who when he's with the brothers had tremendous problems, in fact, they try to kill him. And in Mitzrayim is also separate. He's not an Egyptian. He never really be an Egyptian. Torah will tell us that he eats separately from them. So he's the ultimate Nazir. He's the ultimate, uh, he's the ultimate one who is separated from. Now the Nazir, you don't course, also don't have a background on Moshe within the you know years at the palace as well. You know, you just don't get the you know the gist Torah of something about Moshe. He never says he's in the palace either, by the way. Says yeah, but him. says his, mm -hmm. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. That's all it says. We don't know anything about Moshe. Moshe is separate. That is true. But he's never called the Nazir. And my point about the Nazir, I just repeat what I said once. I've said it more than once, which is this: that the Nazir in the Torah is one thing. The Nazir in the Torah is someone who is a regular Jew but takes on some additional uh, restrictions. But the Nazir in the Bible, not the Torah. Nazir in the Bible is not just taking on extra restrictions. The ultimate Nazir is Shimshon. And Shimshon is a Nazir not only in the sense that he can't drink wine, but he's a Nazir. He doesn't live amongst the Jews altogether. And in point of fact, the story of Shimshon is about something that God is, it's a creation of God for the purpose of carrying out God's plan. God's plan in those stories are to defeat the Philistines. Shimshon is God's emissary. And he has his own code of behavior, his own rules. Doesn't have his our shulchan aruch. He has his own shulchan aruch. And basically, he's assigned to a role. The idea of the nazir in Shimshon is he has a particular. God has singled him out for a role. 
Now, if we think of Joseph in those terms, Joseph, if you think of him as the, like a Shimshon character, a Nazir, the point is that Bukhumish is intimating here, and it's pretty explicit later on, Joseph says it many times himself. Don't be angry that you sold me down here, says Joseph to his brothers. It's God's plan. God sent me here for a purpose. And Joseph says that not just to assuage his brother's sense of guilt. He says it because it's actually the case. That's how Joseph sees himself, man on a mission. God has singled out me out for a mission. And like Shimshon, the mission takes you to many places. Shimshon doesn't go amongst his brethren, amongst the Jews. Shimshon lives and behaves, is in fact a Philistine. The entire story of Shimshon takes place amongst the Philistines. And the story of Joseph takes place in Mitzrayim. He's separated from the brothers. From one standpoint, it's a great tragedy. From the other standpoint, he has a particular mission. That's how Joseph comes to understand it. Now, what the mission is, that's a good question. That we'll deal with later. Does he fully grasp the mission? I don't think so. Till the end, he gets it. But he has a mission. And that's my point about this name of God appearing over here. God is with Joseph. Hashem, he told over and over again, God is with him, God is with him, God is with him. Because God has a plan. And what is God's plan? Well, God told us what his plan is. You don't have to guess. We know what God's plan is. God said it to Abraham. Know very well, that your descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs. They'll be enslaved and abused for 400 years. That is God's stated plan. Whether we like it or not, that is God's plan. And now God intends to carry out God's plan. And God will carry out God's plan. And the catalyst, the one who will bring the Jewish people into slavery, is none other than Joseph himself. And that is God's plan. That's one way to read the book of Genesis. It's another way to read the book. But that is a viable way to read the book, a very correct way to read the book. And there's other ways to read the book as well. We'll come back to this. But my point is that when you have the name of God here, it's so striking, Hashem, over and over. It tells us that this is God's plan. And in fact, in fact, um, in fact, we already, the Chumash has already intimated this is God's plan. Because when Joseph is sent by Jacob to meet his brothers, right? He's, Jacob wants to make peace. Jacob wants the brothers to get along with Joseph. And Jacob sends Joseph to find his brothers. But by the time Joseph arrives at Shechem, they've left. And the Torah says, A man found him. And Joseph was lost. And the man goes over to Joseph and says, What are you looking for? He sees he's lost. It's unusual. He comes over to Je Joseph. What are you looking for? My brothers, they've left. They've gone to Dotan. And from Dotan, Jacob, Joseph will end up in Mitzrayim with a, with a pit stop along the way, but he'll end up in Mitzrayim. Who is the Ish, mysterious Ish? The Ish is an emissary of God. It's a person, but it probably is an emissary of God. It's one of God's angels. God has many angels in this world who directs people. And yes, that's part of, why, why mention the Ish altogether? Chumash could have constructed the story differently. He got it lost. He found his brothers in a different place. No, the Ish sends him there. Sends him to Dotan. Sends him out of the land. 
sends him to Mitzrayim. Because that's part of God's plan. You have to read the book two ways. The history is a function of human behavior and misbehavior. That's one way to read it. And the other way to read it is, it's all part of a divine plan. And if you ask the question, isn't that a contradiction? If it's a divine plan, how can we blame people for what they do? It's already preordained. My answer is, it's a wonderful question. I don't have a good answer to the problem of foreknowledge and free will, but the Chumash does operate that way. The Chumash assumes both. It assumes we accept the fact that it's God's plan, and it assumes that history is a function of human behavior and often misbehavior. That's how the book of Genesis works. It's not one or the other. It's both. Okay. Now, I don't have a watch. What, what time is it now? It is uh, 10 past. Okay, so we have five minutes. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Let's just read a little more and I'll stop for two minutes, a couple minutes, take comments or questions. Um, fine. So now we're told, by, by the way, it's interesting, by the way, let me make two small comments. The word matzliach is an interesting word. The word matzliach appears, right, in verse number two. And again, in verse number three, right? And we have it also when he's in jail. The last verse of the chapter. So the word matzliach, it appears elsewhere in the Bible. It appears, for example, in Abraham's servant, was sent out to find a wife for Isaac. And the servant prays, stops at a well and prays, says, God of Abraham, Oh God, enable my, my derech, my, my journey, my path to be successful. And I just want to make one small point about the word matzliach. Matzliach means to be successful, it takes different forms. But what I noticed about the word matzliach in, 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 in several places, that the word matzliach in particular is found in conjunction with a different word, and that's the word derech. As the servant said, matzliach darki. Tzrachu, it says in the Psalms, of course, tzrachu rechav al derech la'emet. Journey, journey succeed on the, on the true path. And what I, I, I just want to make this point about matzliach, ish matzliach, just to come back to the point I just made. One way to read it is Joseph is, and it's true, forcibly taken from his home and brought down forcibly by the Midianites, by the Ishmaelites. He finds himself willy-nilly in the house of Potiphar, who happens to buy him, etc. But the point about ish matzliach suggests perhaps something else. It's not willy-nilly over here. He's on a particular path. And of course, the, 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 the actors, the ones on the path don't know they're on the path. Joseph doesn't know actually that ending up in jail is the best thing that ever happened to him from a career standpoint. Best thing ever happened to him was in jail, he meets the, the, the Sarah Mashkim and the, he meets the baker and the butler. He interprets their dreams. And later on, they're gonna be his emissaries to bring him in front of Pharaoh, where he will interpret Pharaoh's dreams and become the second most powerful person in the land of Egypt. 
What did Joseph know about jail? He thought he's going to jail. No, no, this is a step along the way. The same thing can be said of being in that pit. He's sitting inside that pit crying out for help. He doesn't realize the best thing that ever happened to him from a certain perspective. Best thing that ever happened. Because from the pit, he's brought down to Mitzrayim. From Mitzrayim to the Potiphar. And Potiphar, which is good, good training for Joseph in the house. He runs the whole plantation for Potiphar. And they had to jail. And that's his big opportunity. And from there to Pharaoh. So there is a, there is a path here. But it's not a path that the people involved don't understand it. But the Chumash wants to make this point. Hashem Matzriach. God enables him to be Matzriach. He's, he's on God's path. God has, a, God has a plan. The actors don't know God's plan. But the Chumash knows God's plan and hints at it. And ultimately we will see it. Okay, that's the term, in terms of the word Matzriach. Matzriach Biyado. One last brief comment, observation, is that Whereas the Torah tells us that Joseph is incredibly successful and it's obviously successful and uh, that Potiphar sees it. He recognizes something special here, divine assistance. It's curious that the Chumash actually in the house of Potiphar never tells us what Joseph does. When it comes to Pharaoh, we know what Joseph does. Torah makes it very, very clear. But in the case over here, it's striking that the Chumash never says what is he doing there? He is being successful. Vayichi uses the intransitive verb vayichi. Maybe to further emphasize, it doesn't matter what he does, basically. He's going to do what ingratiates him with Potiphar and moves him up, 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 up the ladder. And let me make one final comment over here. Joseph will end up in jail. That's his big break. He didn't know it. And because Mrs. Potiphar accuses Joseph of... Uh, of infidelity and accuses Joseph of betraying his boss, which is even worse. He's your servant. Who, who, who's, who's, and, you, and this is the chief butcher, whether he butchers people or animals, who knows? But it's hard to imagine that he had any problem butchering Joseph, and for good reason. He doesn't, though. It's curious. He sends him to jail, puts him in a jail. And we'll discuss maybe next time why, why jail and why not just get rid of him. He doesn't want to get rid of him. He keeps him, as we'll see. Very important point. Okay, so we'll stop here. We, we have begun our own journey. Hopefully it will end at the end of the year with concluding the book of Genesis. Then we can start studying it all over again. But um, good to be back. And uh, okay, if any comments or questions, I'll take now a couple of minutes. You can always reach me with email. Um, and uh, yeah, and Rabbi, and Rabbi Silber, if people have questions, how can they reach you by email? Dsilber at drisha.org. All right. org. Okay, if anybody wants to say something now, please speak up. Anyone? Chat? Even, uh, even the attendees? Uh, if you raise your hand, yeah, I yes. can unmute you. Yeah, oh, yes, talk. You're muted. You're muted, Yale. Unmute. You have to unmute yourself. Can you unmute her, Kayla? Okay, you hear me now? Yes. Todahaba, just thank you for an absolutely thrilling session. It's so wonderful to be back. Okay. What's the question? No question? All right. 
thank you. Shana Tova. Okay. <laughs> no question. Just thank you. Yes. Okay. You're welcome. I suppose that in the future we'll figure out who had the bigger tragedy, the tragedies of Yaakov or Yosef in the in the process. Yes, we will but discuss no, that. But yes. nowhere in Shimshon. Shimshon was so it was such an isolated, you know, kind of person. We never it's perplexing, you know. Uh, maybe I'm not sure the word tragedy is the right word. Yeah. I mean, Joseph, there's there are tragic elements to the story, there's no question about it. I mean, the fact of the matter is that God has the, the, the it's very simple. We, we just finished reading the Torah. And um we read the death of Moshe. Death of Moshe. Um is that a tragedy? I mean, no. the Torah doesn't present it as a tragedy. The Torah says, depends how you see Moshe. The Torah says God, Moshe has a job he doesn't want. He never volunteered for the job. He resists God's attempt to conscript him. At the end of the day, he accepts it. He, give, he gives him to God's will. And God has a mission for Moses. And Moses carried out his mission very well. He's God's servant, Eved Hashem, because Moshe is called Eved Hashem, God's servant. So being God's servant, the servant doesn't determine what, what the servant does. The master determines it. And sometimes it's not what we wanted to do, as in the case of Moshe. I'm not sure I would call that a tragedy. I think the Torah's point is it's God's world and uh, we're here to serve. That's our role. Yes, Jacob's role in Moshe's, Jacob in particular, as Jacob says himself, see it later, how old are you? Not as old as you think. I've had a very bad life. My mm -hmm. years are few and bad, says Jacob. From yeah. a certain objective perspective, his life is, has many tragic elements. There's no question about that. On the other hand, he's the hero of the book because he's the one who willingly accepts the role. He goes down to Egypt at the end. He's gonna build for the future. That's part of the covenantal promise. Covenantal promise is about suffering. It's about enslavement and abuse and being a foreigner, marginalized, all of those things. And that's the covenant that we are handed in the book of Genesis. Maybe we, we, we might've written a different covenant that's not the covenant of Breshi. The covenant of Breshi is pretty clear. So, you know, the goal is, the goal in the Chumash, I would say, is to be God's servant, do God's bidding. Mm. And that's Moshe Avdi. And of course, on Motzei Shabbat, we sing the, the Malava Malka. What do we sing Malava Malka? Atira Avdi Yaakov. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Jacob is Eben Hashem. That is, I think, the goal. I wouldn't call it a tragedy. I would call it difficult. And maybe at least a certain amount of unhappiness. It's not easy, but that's the role that the Torah has assigned us. I'll stop at this point. Um, so we'll continue next week. Uh, do you have any announcements, Kayla? Yes. Um, to join, this is the first class of our Falls Month, kicking off the season. If you want to learn with us at Drisha more over Zoom, please check out our fall listings. I've posted the link in the chat. We have a wide range of offerings, including poetry, some more philosophical classes, some skill review classes. It's an interesting lineup, and I recommend you give it a look. Yeah, I wanted to say one thing, Kayla, just uh, 